When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. This week's episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text is brought to you by BetterHelp. BetterHelp is a mental health platform that provides direct online counseling and therapy services via web or phone text communication. You don't even need to use flu powder in order to access a therapist through BetterHelp. I think we can all tell in book five that if you keep your feelings bottled up, it can start to affect you negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off of your chest if you don't have access to Dumbledore's office. I know in my life, therapy has helped me identify patterns to help me interrupt ones that I don't feel like are healthy and find better ways to cope. If you're thinking about starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash sacred text today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash sacred text. Hi, Vanessa, Matt, and team. Hey, sacred text team. Hi, Harry Potter and the sacred text team. I'm Vanessa Zoltan. And I'm Hannah McGregor. And this is a special owl post of Harry Potter in the Sacred Text. Hannah McGregor is an assistant professor of publishing at Simon Fraser University. She is the host of the podcast Secret Feminist Agenda and the Spoken Web Podcast and co-host, of course, of Witch Please, a feminist podcast about the Harry Potter world. She also co-edited the book Refuse, Can Lit in Ruins, and is here today to talk to us about her new book, A Sentimental Education. Welcome, Hannah. Yay! Thank you, Vanessa. Well, Hannah, you are going to answer some questions from our listeners today with us. But first, I really do want to talk to you about your fantastic new book, A Sentimental Education, which, by the way, shares a title with one of my all-time favorite books, Sentimental Education by Flaubert. Incredible. I stole it. I've never read it. (laughs) So good, Hannah. So good. Okay. So good. You actually state in this book that you haven't read two of my all-time favorite books. And you've definitely read many more books than I have. Yeah. You should read Les Mis and Sentimental Education. Ugh, Les Mis is so long, though. Yeah, skip the middle <laughs> 300 pages about the war. <laughs> Just like, who cares? And then you start back up. Yeah. That's all you got to know. Yeah, fair. <laughs> you love a doorstopper of a I like do. 18th or 19th century book. So I'm surprised you liked my book, which is both 21st century and as short as a book <laughs> legally can be. <laughs> I love contemporary books and I love your book. I mean, one of the things that I love about your book is you, you have this sentence early on that says, I was raised on sentimentality. And then you list 
the exact same women who I was raised sort of with and on. Joe mm-hmm. March from Little Women, Lizzie Bennett from Pride and Prejudice, Ariel from Little Mermaid. You call these young women queer, which I want to hear you talk about. And then I also obviously want to hear you talk about whether or not you think Hermione fits in to this paradigm of these young women of pluck who we are trained to have sentimental eyes on. Yeah, absolutely. So when I think about those women as queer, you know, the ones who sort of really defined my early childhood reading, and I think defined a lot of our sort of demographics early childhood reading, I mean queer in the double sense. So I mean both Mm -hmm. that one of the things that characterizes these girl protagonists is that they don't quite fit in. Right. Like they're always, you know, I'm thinking of like, I want more than this provincial life. Oh, that girl is so queer. Isn't she? Like, Mm -hmm. that's what Belle is, right? She's the queer girl in town. And at the same time, the queerness of these girls is also there in the text because Mm -hmm. their emotional life worlds are other girls. They are surrounded Mm -hmm. by other girls. And like maybe a Lori, which like convince me Lori is heterosexual. I dare you. (laughs) You know, they are surrounded by they love girls, right? We've got Anne and Diana being bosom buddies and swearing to love only each other for the rest of their lives. Kindred. Kindred. And that eventually they get pulled into compulsory heterosexuality because that is how the genre works and because that is how the historical period worked. But the queerness remains in what makes these girls attractive as heroines. And Mm -hmm. is also there more explicitly in some of the text, right? So like Little Women, we know, we have documentary archival evidence that Joe was not originally intended to marry at all. Mm -hmm. You know, we know Alcott was queer. Mm -hmm. We know she didn't want Joe to marry a man. She sort of Mm -hmm. was talked into it by her publishers. And in that sense, I wish Hermione was queerer. Mm-hmm. I actually find, again, in that sense, I find Ginny a queerer character mm-hmm. because Ginny has more of a life world of being surrounded by other girls from the little yep. bit we see of it. But Hermione is one of those girls who hates other girls. She disdains their emotional, like she finds them yeah. silly and unserious and would never. Yeah. The Harry Potter world in general, right, like Romilda Vane and her friends are off giggling and that is seen as silly and awful. Yeah. And Parvati and Lavender, right, are yep. like seen as this like cultish group of two that like has heart eyes, right? And like all they care about is romantic love and seeing the future and bunnies and isn't that silly as if any yeah. of those things are in and of themselves silly. The internalized misogyny of the Harry Potter world is deep. Mm -hmm. One of the things that I love about these other books that you outline is how much these characters love other women and love each other and love sisterhood. Yeah. And I do think that that was part of what drew me to them 
as a kid. I remember reading Anne of Green Gables and feeling like my best friend and I were kindred, just like Anne and Diane, right? Yeah. That there was this chosenness and yet like fatedness about it. Yeah. But what does it mean to you when you're talking about them as sentimental characters or that Mm -hmm. we read them sentimentally? So right there, the distinction between calling them sentimental characters and saying we read them sentimentally gets at the useful multiple meanings of the sentimental. Which I had never thought about before I read your book. So I wasn't that a it smart means so nuance? many different things. <laughs> yeah, you're very smart. Thank you. You're very smart. <laughs> so on the one hand, sentimental novels were a genre. And so mm-hmm. that's where we get, for example, Louisa May Alcott writing Little Women, not wanting Joe to get married and being told by her publisher, sorry, this is how these books end. Yeah. Your readers will be outraged if you do not end this with Joe successfully getting married off to somebody. And so Alcott goes, ha ha, well, then she's going to marry a weird old German man. <laughs> nice try. Which... It's going to be unsatisfying for everyone. Hey, I ran away with an older German man and I'm very satisfied. <laughs> Peter, I love you. And I'm not with you because my publisher made me. (laughs) Sorry, it was the only satisfying narrative conclusion. You are going to have to open a school for boys. You know what? That actually sounds lovely. Sorry. Yeah. So, yes. What is the genre of sentimental fiction? Yes. So we've got the genre of sentimental fiction, and that is that genre that a lot of us were raised on, right? That's the Anne of Green Gables. That's the Little Women. That's the, to some degree, Austen. And what makes that a genre? So the characteristics of the genre of sentimental fiction is that it is about the emotional maturing of a protagonist who moves from being sort of emotionally uncontrolled or emotionally immature to being emotionally mature and ready to sort of join adult society. And so sentimental fiction has a tendency to sort of focus on the sort of internal emotional journey. Characters become legible to you insofar as they feel intensely. So a lot of the time it's less about external event and more about internal emotional landscape. And yeah, there's a tendency to sort of fixate on the need for an ending in which futurity is ensured in some way, right? So this kind of Mm -hmm. relatively conservative ending. We get those in these sort of more romantic stories, but then we also get versions of this where like the satisfying ending is that the sickly child too pure for this world dies and goes to heaven. Mm -hmm. And that is also a version of the sentimental conclusion. And so In general, while there are particular themes that we see in the literature of this period, in general, when we talk about sentimental fiction, what we're talking about is books that are concerned primarily with the internal emotional landscapes of our characters Mm -hmm. and with their sort of progression from immaturity to greater maturity. So, like, we could for sure group romance novels in the larger genre of sentimental fiction, For sure. But why would we want to do that? Who cares about romance novels? Me, you, all of us, everyone. (laughs) Everyone should. But then we also read sentimentally. And in that sense, what we're talking about is having a relationship to a text that is rooted in its emotional resonances with us personally. So, Hannah, I know you a little bit, and I know that you are a deeply political person. Mm. So I'm wondering if you could tell us the political stakes of this conversation, which I think is the 
central thesis of this fantastic book. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So it was kind of the starting point of this book was thinking about what are the political stakes of stories that focus on the internal emotional landscape. And sort of the biggest ones for me is that our belief in sentimentality tends to create these cultural texts, so books, movies, podcasts, where we attempt to render like minoritized subjects legible and worthy of compassion by turning them into sentimental subjects. So my go-to example for this, like whenever I'm teaching this history, is Humans of New York, which is a project that is all about like showing you a person who is the kind of person you might walk by on the street without thinking twice about, and then framing them in terms of an internal emotional experience that is translated into something that will be legible for you, right? We Mm -hmm. know it's translated. There's no way everybody is offering a beautiful, poetic, first-person monologue to this photographer. Mm -hmm. That would be absurd. So Mm -hmm. it's definitely being translated in some way, if not fabricated whole cloth, in a way that then renders that person sympathetic to us on terms that we can understand. And so for some, sentimentality is like, look, that's successful. Like, Humans of New York has fundraised a ton of money because he'll go to a refugee camp and talk to the refugees and give them all of these sort of relatable stories. And then people are like, oh, they're people just like us. We should Mm -hmm. give them money. The problem then is that we continue to think that the only people who are worthy of not even of care, but like of human rights and dignity and the things they need to survive are people who are just like us in some way. Right. Yeah. And how does that manifest in, I wouldn't pull this trick on everyone, but you are part-time a Harry Potter podcaster. Mm -hmm. How would you see that translate in the Harry Potter books? Who's a character that you feel like is written sentimentally and shouldn't be? Oh, I'm thinking Sirius Black. But ooh, oh, Snape, go. Snape, Snape, absolutely. So Snape is this character who is characterized through almost the entire series as a child abuser. Yep. That is almost all we see of Snape is that he is emotionally, constantly emotionally abusing multiple children. And we never see him physically hurt any of them, but he certainly threatens to. And like chemically threatens to, right? Yeah. 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 Or like threatens to murder their pets if they do badly at an assignment. Like absolutely shocking behavior. And then in the final book, Snape's entire arc is retold in terms of a sentimental story in which he was somebody who was emotionally immature and selfish. He loved Lily, but he loved her selfishly. Then Lily dies, and that tragedy transforms him into somebody who loves her selflessly. And then he becomes the self-sacrificing hero who, you know, is defined by his ongoing love for Lily and the way that she sort of as the perfect white woman in the story. Yeah. I often say there is no more perfect white woman than a dead white woman. So she, from beyond the grave, transforms him into a better man. And all of a sudden, we're meant to understand Snape as a sentimental hero who bravely sacrificed himself for this love, 
even though we just read six previous books in which he just abuses children. And so what would be a non-sentimental version? Let's take the plot seriously, right? Mm. That this is the motivation for what he's been up to this whole time. How could it be told in a way that it would be more rigorous to you in the like, you don't have to be sweet and sentimental and the perfect dead white lady to deserve human rights, right? Like jerks need health care too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Jerks do also need health care. I mean, in terms of the Snape story, <laughs> this is making me also want to talk about Creature. So let's put a yeah. pin in this because I want to talk about Creature too. But in terms of the Snape storyline, so I was recently re-listening to the Witch Please episodes we made when we had read the script of The Cursed Child. And I had a really strong reaction to the storyline they gave Snape in that mm -hmm. because he, in timeline C, which is the one where Harry is killed and Voldemort comes to power, Snape continues on as a double agent at Hogwarts for the rest of his life. And he talks about the fact that eventually, by virtue of just doing this work, he comes to believe it. And that, to me, is such an interesting character shift that is actually like a really different way of thinking about how one becomes a good person and how one practices mm -hmm. ethics, that it's not about some sort of spontaneous internal transformation, but mm -hmm. almost this kind of like Aristotelian, like you just yeah. acted virtuous for a really long time until eventually you became a better person. Right. And it doesn't romanticize what he was before that. It actually critiques what he was before that. It critiques the sort of shallowness of a commitment to a cause that is about rights and equity, but that for him was actually just about, about selfish self-interest. Right. And he distinguishes between doing that because it was a sentimental attachment and doing it because he's come to actually believe it. And it's so much less romantic and so much more grueling to do it because you believe it. Why? Say more. Okay, so this is part of the premise of a sentimental yeah. education as a whole, is that when you have a serious political commitment, you don't say, okay, I'm a feminist, I did it, I achieved feminism, box checked, yeah. thank you, I'm good, mm -hmm. and I will no longer be thinking about anything. And then actually, I can have incredibly bad politics if I want, it's okay because I'm a feminist. I can become outwardly transphobic, yes. but it's fine. I'm a feminist. I can vote for a conservative government that wants to take away reproductive rights because I align with them on my transphobia, but that's okay. It's still a feminist thing to do somehow because I'm a feminist. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, Snape in... Deathly Hallows is a good person because he has said, I'm a good person. And so yep. doesn't need to do it. Doesn't need to actually do it. I mean, doesn't do nothing. Yeah, yeah. But certainly is not pushing himself to enact any kind of real lived commitment to his avowed politics on a daily basis. Yeah. And it's on the daily basis that politics happen. Yeah. They don't happen in big theoretical sort of commitments. They happen on the mundane day-to-day. -day. And, you know, I worked in the nonprofit world for 10 years and have a lot of feelings about it. 
And one of the things that frustrates me is this idea that you can essentially live your life as a conservative person who cares about nothing but making money. Mm-hmm. And then you donate money and then you're a good person, right? Yes. Again, it's this like purchasable thing. Yeah. That, and it's not about the dailiness of your life. It is, I've made enough money, I can donate it. All things are even. Yeah. Yeah. One of the major theorists that I'm working with in the book is Lauren Berlant, whose work has been so incredibly meaningful to me. And they actually died quite young, right in the middle of the process of me writing this book. And I didn't realize that they had one final book that wasn't out yet that has just come Mm. out that is called On the Inconvenience of Other People. (laughs) And the premise is that sort of living in the world is a matter of opting into being inconvenienced. And that idea, right, that like it is not sort of a theoretical idea of like I'll look at a Humans of New York post and feel sad and donate some money and then off I go continuing on my day-to-day life without actually attending to any of the like maybe structural choices that I'm making that have led to the human suffering being represented in these images in the first place because I don't want to be inconvenienced by it. I actually would like to feel good, if at all Mm -hmm. possible. So if anything ethical that I did could make me feel great about myself and then also not inconvenience me at all, sounds great. And what Berlant is arguing is that actually, like, living ethically in the world is about being inconvenienced and wanting to be inconvenienced. Yeah, it's one of the reasons why people describe themselves in religious settings as not joiners, Mm. right? It's they don't want the inconvenience of being in community. And being in community is really freaking hard. And there's always someone, well, there's like always someone who smells a way you don't want them to, right? Like you don't like their perfume, right? Like whatever it is, like there's always like literally a sensory issue with someone there. And and I am in no way telling people that they should join their religious, the church on their corner. But I don't think that that is a reason to not be part of a, no. a religious community is because other people are annoying. Yeah. That's a feature, not a bug. Yeah. You know, I am a childless queer person. And so my emotional life world is in the friends and community that I have built around me. And I am a deep, deep believer in mutual aid and networks of care. And the idea that, like, when somebody in your community is going through a thing, like, you are there offering material support in whatever capacity you have. And a big part of it is learning, like, okay, here's the thing I'm good at. I can offer the following. But this other person's good at this thing, and they can offer the following. And in this particular situation, actually, I'm not. (laughs) What I have to offer is not going to help. So, but I can get in touch with this. other. You know, so it's a skill set you build up. And it's absolutely about showing up for people when it's not fun or nice or pretty or entertaining. And so often I will like mention to a friend like, oh, yeah, I know this, you know, this other friend of mine who's disabled is moving. And so like I just went over and like helped her pack for five hours tonight. And they're like, Mm -hmm. oh, my God, you're such a good friend in this tone that suggests You know, what you've done is over and above what one could reasonably expect of friendship. Right. It feels to me like that same thing. Like you can't just show up when it's fun. Right. You can't just show up when you like how everybody smells. 
I mean, you can. You're just going to miss a lot. You're going to miss a lot. Yeah. You wanted to talk about Creature. I have one other question, but I want to hear you talk about Creature and sentimentality before I ask my last question. Yeah, absolutely. What happens to Creature, I think, is also quite a sentimental trope. So Creature is this sort of mean, villainous character who we're meant to maybe have a little bit of pity for, but for the most part, he's the one who betrays Sirius, and so we hate him, even though Sirius kind of arguably had it coming. But then, you know, in the final book, they figure out what Creature's sad, emotional story is and give him a nice present, and now Creature is nice. Because they have figured out how to sort of render Creature relatable on their own emotional terms. So Creature cannot be dealt with when Creature is still mad. Creature cannot be taken seriously or allotted any sort of compassion, let alone like lack of abuse, if he continues to be this sort of like unruly subject. But once they've tamed Creature via sentimentality, he immediately is so lovely and amenable and wants to make them lovely meals. And it really reminds me of the way that sentimental novels of the 18th and 19th century in particular talked about race. Yep. And this is something you talk about in your book, the way that Uncle Tom's Cabin handles race. But can you draw that out for us? Yeah. How does it map onto how 18th and 19th century American novels talk about race. Yeah, absolutely. So the project of authors like Harriet Beecher Stowe was to address slavery by rendering enslaved people legible to white readers as sentimental subjects. And generally, you know, certainly in Uncle Tom's Cabin, that's done by showing them being loving towards white children, which... Lo and behold, we still love those stories like The Help, which is entirely about rendering the political struggles of African-American people legible to a white audience by making them sentimental through showing them loving white children. That is kind of exactly the same thing that happens to Creature, that he is literally enslaved. And the fact that he is enslaved and abused is not sufficient for him to earn any rights. You know, we have Hermione being like, hey, maybe even when house elves are unpleasant, they don't deserve to be treated this way. And everybody laughs her off. The narrative itself doesn't take Hermione seriously. What renders Creature sympathetic is that we learn that he, in fact, loved a white child. And if treated properly, can come to love white children again. The two quotes that live in my head pertaining to this are one, Virginia Woolf saying that fiction is ultimately an anti-war effort, Mm. that if we could imagine our ways into the people who we were fighting against, we would never be able to kill them, right? Armed forces train people to dehumanize the people who they're fighting for exactly this reason. And then, you know, Elif Boutman talks about how empathy is a form of erasure, because when you're empathizing, what you're doing is projecting your own relatable story onto somebody. Yeah. I don't think Wolf would disagree with that. You know, she talked about how unknowable we were to one another. But I think that as an anti-war effort, 
right? Like as Mm -hmm. a campaign, Humans of New York is effective, right? By like calling on our empathy, right? Fiction as an Mm anti-war effort. But we don't want to just live. We want more than not war, right? Like we want the full humanity, which means more than this abstract empathy of like, oh, you save someone. You have the same feelings as I do. We want a radical form of like, it doesn't matter. You should just have access to this. Yeah. Yeah. And there's also in those sort of tropes of sentimental narratives require that in order to render some people sympathetic subjects, you still have to define them against those who are outside the limits Right. Mm -hmm. So those who are bad. This is, I think, all the time about this great book by Jody Melamed called Represent and Destroy. And she's got a close reading of reading Lolita in Tehran in it. Mm -hmm. And she talks about how to render some Iranian subjects legible to an American readership, you have to contrast them against those who are oppressing them, those who are beyond the pale, those who are not redeemable. And so even in the act of sort of generating empathy, often empathy is generated in fiction by saying, oh, no, actually, this person is working with me against this, our other shared enemy. Yeah, it doesn't have to be a shared enemy. It It can just be. Okay, my last question for you is just one thing that you mention and talk about toward the end of your book, which is making mistakes in public. Mm. And this is about, you know, your whole book is about how a feminist identity is not a fixed state and that you have to live your whole life toward it and the roles that sentimentality has in that. And you talk about times when you on Witch Please or in various podcasts, and believe it or not, I can relate to this, have messed up in the past. And you describe it very similarly as to how I've experienced it, which is that your listeners very kindly are like, hey, you messed up. We have lost listeners for our mistakes before. Same. But I would not say we have been canceled, right? But I do think that nowadays there is this fear because of social media, because of podcasting, there being a recording device in front of us, there's a fear of making mistakes out loud, mm-hmm. which, you know, is its own white supremacist idea, right? That, yes. Like there has to be this performed civility and perfectionism out loud. And I'm wondering if you can talk about that. How does it feel for you? I know how it feels for me, but with you as someone who is constantly thinking about how to live into your feminist identity, how does it feel to make a mistake and have it be on tape and then tweet it out and promote it? And, you know, how do you deal with those things? Yeah. Because I think it's something that we all deal with. We all want to delete a tweet. Yes. Yes. And you know what? Sometimes the correct answer is to delete the tweet. Mm-hmm. That is part of it. Learning to make mistakes out loud really is something that I learned to do, and I learned to do it the hard way by doing it, by making the mistakes, and then having people sometimes very gently and lovingly and sometimes a bit more bracingly be like, hey, no, no, that is not it. You absolutely did not do it there. Who knows how much of this was just my innate personality, because I know it is harder for some people than I have found it. But ultimately, I find the experience generative, because I know that that is when I am doing 
sometimes my biggest learning. And a big part of that was modeled to me by other feminists. You know, my friend and colleague, Aaron Wunker, once described critique as an act of generosity and said, you know, when somebody takes the time to really tell you that you have made a mistake, that is time that they did not need to take. That is a gift that they are offering you. Um, it doesn't mean that you have to immediately be like, yes, everything that you have said about why I am bad is 100% correct. What you have to do is take it seriously as an offering and then make the decision about whether or not you want to enter into conversation with that person and what it looks like to enter into conversation with a critique of your words or actions really will look different depending on context. So sometimes, you know, somebody says to me, you said this thing and it really hurt me. And I will try to follow up with curiosity. Like, I hear you. It was absolutely not my intention. I would really love to have a conversation about this and try to understand better where this, you know, where this miscommunication happened. And that will usually go in a fruitful direction because you will either you will figure out if that was a good faith critique that there's actually, you know, some learning that you can do or sometimes it is a bad faith critique and all that person wants to do is you know, tell you that you were wrong or try to shut you down or or they're just using you as like an emotional battering ram like and so that's, you know, part of it is that you have to or for me I have had to learn to take critique as an opening into conversation. And when you think of it as an opening into conversation, you realize that the knee-jerk reaction of how dare you, you must be wrong because I am good, or the knee-jerk reaction of I am a monster and have never said anything right are equally unproductive. So curiosity has been a really big part of that learning for me. And the other big thing for me is that I am a teacher, and if there is anything that I am optimistic about, it is the capacity for humans to learn. You can't be a teacher if you don't think that people can learn things and change as a result of the things that they learn. And so it has for a very long time been a really important like pedagogical intervention of mine to model to my students my own failures in as small ways as like, oh, look at this typo on the syllabus. Wow, everybody does typos. Or here, look, here's an early draft of an essay that I wrote with the editor's notes on it so that you can see mm -hmm. that I am not producing <laughs> publishable first drafts. <laughs> that would be absurd. My first drafts are also very messy. I need somebody to step in and help me. So it's modeling right. that you don't start off fully formed. Right. And and that is is a really helpful teaching tool. And so part of it for me is being willing to model publicly. Like, I didn't start off fully formed. I wasn't birthed from my mother as a feminist, tiny fist in the air. <laughs> all been stuff I've had to learn. And I know that there are so many things that I have yet to learn and so many things that I will continue to learn. And I don't think I can expect that of other people, my students included, if I'm not willing to also be doing it myself. Yeah. Well, Hannah, I really do encourage everybody to read your book. It's so helpful 
I love books like this that don't just teach you facts, but teach you a different lens through which to see the world Mm. and that change your perspective and you see everything a little bit different after. And so I just can't encourage people enough to go read Sentimental Education. It will retrain your eye toward the Harry Potter books and toward a lot of other things in your life also. Thank you. Will you stick around with me and respond to some voicemails? I will. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. This week's episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text is brought to you by Redfin. Let's say for some reason, you can't get back to Grimmauld Place, so you need to find a new home. If you're like me, you would go to Redfin. Redfin updates their listings every two minutes and sends you personalized recommendations, so finding the home that's perfect for you has never been easier. If you see something you like, just book a tour straight from the app. And when you're ready to buy, an experienced local Redfin agent can guide you through the whole process. And if you're looking to sell, Redfin agents know how to get you the best price possible for your home. That's because they sell twice as many homes as other agents. With a listing fee as low as 1%, Redfin's fees are half of what others often charge, which means you'll have more money to put toward your next home. They even have a function where Trelawney will tell you whether or not she can see you in this house. Redfin. It's how Molly found the burrow. Download the Redfin app to get started. Our first voicemail is from Kath. Hi, Vanessa, Matt, and team. I'm calling with a blessing and a well-worn Havruta question. My husband and I go back and forth on it all the time. My blessing is for James Potter, who made a sacrifice that always gets second billing. James and Lily both die to protect Harry, I believe with equal love and equal sacrificial weight. But the narrative of Harry's unique power is in every book of the series traced back to his mother's sacrifice. Your mother died to save you. So here's my Havruta question, which I'd love to hear your takes on. Why does Lily's sacrifice generate this ethos-defining protective power, and James's doesn't? Per the scene in Book 7 in which we see the Potter's murders through Harry's vision of Voldemort's memory, James dies minutes before Lily. James, like Lily, is unarmed. Like Lily, his body is the only obstacle he puts in Voldemort's path to Harry. For me, the only differences between James and Lily's deaths are that James has no time to plead and that James is not a mother. This is where I think some personal experience and honestly some bitterness affects my own reading. I'm a person who's always wanted to be a mother. It's been the central ambition of my life for literally as long as I can remember. 
My husband and I emerged just over a year ago from an agonizing IVF journey that dragged us through four years of surgeries and needles and hormones and quiet ultrasounds without heartbeats. We've now been working with an adoption agency for a year and a half, and we don't know when or if we'll ever be parents. So the identity of mother is a very fraught one for me. It's one I always thought I would inevitably assume, and one that would maybe round out and make sense of the rest of who I am. There are lots of reasons I developed these flawed assumptions over a lifetime as a cis woman in our society, but among the most powerful, I think, is the pervasive idea that there's this magic to motherhood, that women self-actualize as mothers in ways they never could otherwise, that a mother's love has some alchemical power that no other love can ever have. So I feel some bitterness and anger over the way that Lily's sacrifice is represented as somehow purer and more powerful than James's. James died for Harry. There's literally nothing more that he could have done to protect his child except, it seems, to be a mother. And he can't be a mother any more than I can. I worry that my Havruta answer is not really sacred. It's more a critique of Rowling and what I think is her participation in fetishizing mother love. I think Lily's sacrifice is the sacrifice of the series because Rowling believes in that mystical mother power that only biological mothers can bestow on their children. So my blessing is for James and for Dobby and for everyone who loves and sacrifices but isn't a mom. I hope you all feel that your love is powerful even if it doesn't come with that magical identity. Thank you for all you do. Sending lots of love. Kath, first of all, thank you so much for your beautiful voicemail. Second of all, I'm so sorry that your road to parenthood is not going in the way that you thought it would, regardless of your incredibly mature response to that. I can only imagine that it is incredibly heartrending in all sorts of ways and, and physically exhausting and difficult. So I'm just really sorry that that is not going the way that you pictured it going. I also just think that, Hannah, yours in my conversation like this question is perfect for the kind of thing we're yeah. talking about, right? Yeah. Like, as you said, like the, we we love a dead white woman. Yeah. And that is a magic, right? I would love to hear your thoughts in response to Kath's and her husband's Havruta question. Yeah. I mean, thank you also for sharing so beautifully. I have to say, I would argue that the generous and beautiful critique offered in this voicemail is absolutely sacred. And also that I agree this feels so on topic. Actually, the day that we were recording, September 20th, an episode of Which Please went up with the aforementioned Aaron Wunker talking about motherhood. And Aaron gives us this history of the idea of the angel in the house, which was this Victorian construction of sort of ideal white femininity that in the U.S. was often known as the cult of true womanhood, I think. Really just a distressing, distressing language that very explicitly framed the responsibility of white women is to be mothers in order to, you know, forward the white race is always the subtext, but that women only achieve their full actualization by sacrificing everything for their families, but most especially for their children. And that is a narrative that simultaneously undermines any form of care for children that falls outside of, like, the biological cis-hetero-patriarchal reproductive family unit, but also that denies 
women full and rich life worlds if they're doing anything that isn't reproducing. It's a real double-edged sword, right? So for those of us who have bodies that have uteruses and don't use those uteruses to make children, we are failures in some way. And for those of us who love children in our lives very deeply but didn't make those children, our love is not as good. It's always sort of a second-class love. And it's a narrative that has a very particular politics behind it that is rooted in patriarchy and cisnormativity and white supremacy. And it's also a narrative that just fails us all. I also think that one of the narratives going on here is that men sacrifice their lives in war, and that's one of the things that we're okay with. Yeah. And at least in the United States, we love a dead soldier more than an alive veteran, right? Mm -hmm. Like, we do not believe in putting a lot of resources towards veterans. And yet we have parades and memorials for the mostly young men, at least historically, who have died in war. And James is a soldier who died. And like, that's expected, right? Like, his body is just expected to endure this violence. But women and children, civilians, no, right? And I think some of that within the context of war is whatever. But I think that that mentality gets pushed onto James's body where there's just an expectation that he'll die violently in this war. But it's a tragedy when Lily does. Yeah. And that gets to this thing that we keep talking about, right? It's certain bodies as weapon, Mm -hmm. certain bodies as sentimentality, this body as weapon. And again, it's just reducing bodies to something. Yeah. And I think that is why James is killed immediately, thoughtlessly, because he's a soldier and he can just fall, you know, before this weapon. And Lily is given the choice because Lily is not a soldier because she is a woman. You know, she's every bit as much a member of the Order of the Phoenix. Right. But she's not a soldier. She's a woman. She's specifically given an out because Snape wants her. Yeah. But that's just another shorthand for she's primarily understood as an object of desire, as a mother, as a wife, as a woman before a soldier. And so she's given an out. And so when she dies, that is a more deliberate sacrifice. Right. But again, that's a way of essentializing who both of these parents are away from their complexity as actual humans down to their biological function, and what they have to give in the war effort. Right. Well, Kath, thank you so much for this really thought-provoking and beautiful voicemail. We're so grateful. Yeah. And I hope you can find lots and lots of examples of families that take different shapes that can help you see that there are lots and lots of different ways of being a family that are really rich and beautiful and rewarding. Our next voicemail is from Sam. Hey, Sacred Text team. Uh, My name is Sam, and I was just listening to one of your final episodes on Prisoner of Azkaban, and I wanted to send in a blessing for Remus Lupin. Number one, because we can never bless Remus Lupin enough. Um, I just think he's fantastic. And secondly, because something occurred to me during my listening of the podcast Dumbledore is pretty aware by now that there's a curse on the Defense Against the Dark Arts position at the school. 
And I don't think that he probably tells that to Lupin. So Lupin's going into this job probably thinking that he's got a nice little career ahead of him at the school that he went to. And then at the end of the year has to leave. And I think that Dumbledore probably knew that going into it and didn't give that information to Lupin. So I just wanted to bless Lupin for that. And I also wanted to bless him for the years that he had between Harry's parents' death and the loss of one of his best friends to, you know, being wrongly put in prison until, you know, he discovers all of the truth and all of the lost years that he kind of had to deal with that alone. And um, yeah, just a blessing for him and for anyone who is kind of being gaslit by the world that they live in uh, or being lied to by those in power. Um, Thanks so much, Sacred Text team. So a blessing for us all, Sam. (laughs) Ha ha! (laughs) Oh. I mean, do we think that curse is real? Say more. Well, I always interpreted that as a sort of, like, urban legend at Hogwarts that, like, you know, Voldemort wanted this job and he wasn't able to get it and so he curse the job and anybody else who does it is going to be cursed. And one, we find out at the end of the series that it seems pretty clear Voldemort never actually wanted that job. He was just using the interview as an excuse to hide a horcrux in the school. I feel like if it is actually a curse, it's a very odd curse because (laughs) it's a curse that takes the form of Okay, so the first Defense Against the Dark Arts teacher just has Voldemort on his head. So that's <laughs> a weird manifestation of that curse. And then the second one is a fraud. The third one gets outed as a werewolf. Like, none of these are weird, bad things that happen to them. Right. These are all things that are true about them prior to their getting these jobs. Well, I think the job is cursed, not the individual people. Okay. I don't know. No, I don't I don't believe in this curse and what I do believe in very much is self-fulfilling prophecy. Mm. And not always, but I think that I know for myself when I am more worried about falling, like I am more likely to fall because my anxiety distracts me from certain things. So I do think that we can like get into our own heads. And mm-hmm. I also think that people can root against you. What you're looking for in hiring for this position could be different because you're like, they're only going to last a year. What does it matter? I guess I just think it's unclear if the novel actually thinks it's cursed or if the novel just thinks that Dumbledore is horrible at hiring. Oh, I (laughs) I think we've got plenty of evidence that Dumbledore is not so much horrible at hiring as... His criteria are not good. (laughs) His criteria are primarily about using job openings as a way to collect people who will be useful to him, whether or not they have any actual skill in teaching. Okay, so the question is, did Dumbledore know that this was not going to be, or did he tell Lupin that, like, this is likely not going to be an ongoing role for you. So here's the thing, Sam and Hannah 
and all of our listeners, I think regardless of whether or not Dumbledore believes that this position is cursed, I think he knows that there's a time limit on it, that eventually Mm. people are going to find out that Lupin is a werewolf and Mm -hmm. he will lose his job. And I think Dumbledore is probably hoping that that doesn't happen for a long, long time. Mm -hmm. This is a moment where I actually admire Dumbledore. He has created a system in which Lupin can be safe with the Wolfsbane and he has enlisted some social structures to be there with Snape to make sure that this is getting done in a regular way. So I think that this is a moment in which Dumbledore is really trying to do the right thing and is doing the right thing. And one year of Lupin having a job is better than no years of Lupin having a job. We know that he is poor coming into this year. And after he loses his job at Hogwarts, he is going to sink deeper and deeper into poverty. Mm-hmm. I would like to think that Dumbledore hoped it wasn't going to happen, thought it might happen, and thought that he should hire Lupin anyway. Yeah. I do buy that because I think Dumbledore often has noble intentions that are also rooted in a kind of realistic understanding of the world. And I also would not be surprised if you communicated zero of this to Lupin because we also know that Dumbledore is a poor communicator. Yes. Well, is he a poor communicator if he doesn't do it at all? Like, am I a poor (laughs) electrician or am I just not an electrician? You know, like I've I only change light bulbs. And I feel like that's what Dumbledore does in communication. Yeah. That's the most he does. To carry this metaphor further, if Dumbledore were an electrician, he would be the kind who is unlicensed and is doing secret weird wiring in his own home. You know, you buy an old house and you open up the walls and there's something in there that's just like, who did this? What (laughs) were they thinking? How could anybody possibly, that's the kind of, like he's communicating, but he's communicating in such a way that no person could ever reasonably be expected to understand it. Fair enough. Well, Sam, thank you so much for this voicemail and agreed blessings always for Lupin. Yeah. This week's episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text is brought to you by Redfin. Let's say for some reason... You can't get back to Grimmauld Place, so you need to find a new home. If you're like me, you would go to Redfin. Redfin updates their listings every two minutes and sends you personalized recommendations, so finding the home that's perfect for you has never been easier. If you see something you like, just book a tour straight from the app. And when you're ready to buy, an experienced local Redfin agent can guide you through the whole process. And if you're looking to sell, Redfin agents know how to get you the best price possible for your home. That's because they sell twice as many homes as other agents. With a listing fee as low as 1%, Redfin's fees are half of what others often charge, which means you'll have more money to put toward your next home. They even have a function where Trelawney will tell you whether or not she can see you in this house. Redfin. It's how Molly found the burrow. Download the Redfin app to get started. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. 
Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. And our last voicemail today is from Beth. Hi, Harry Potter and the Sacred Text team. My name is Beth. I just listened to your episode on anticipation, and it struck me how much of the conversation focused on anticipation is more of a, a negative feeling. I wondered, what about all the wonderful kinds of anticipation? To me, it's uh, the difference between waiting for the other shoe to drop and waiting for the beat to drop. A couple of weeks ago, I went to a dance event for the first time in three years. It used to be a huge part of my life, and During the pandemic, I've slowly started seeing these dance events spring back to life, but they have been wildly different in the COVID precautions they take, some not even mentioning the existence of COVID. This event, I finally felt safe going to because the precautions they took were so strong. I looked forward to it for months, getting more and more excited as it crept closer. It felt like when you're on the dance floor and you feel the music amping up and everyone's bodies are getting tense and their movements are getting smaller and more controlled, there's that split second of silence before the beat finally drops and everyone releases that stress together and their movements get big and loose and wild. This whole weekend felt like that kind of release. And it made me think of Quidditch and especially it made me think of Lee Jordan, The whole school anticipates every Quidditch match, but Lee's job as the commentator plays such an important role in channeling that anticipation, helping everyone know where to direct their focus, ramping their energy up until finally, he's done it! Harry Potter's caught the snitch! Gryffindor wins the Quidditch Cup! So I just want to give a blessing to Lee Jordan and DJs and event organizers and Dr. Frankenfurter and all those who know how to play with that anticipation because they know that energy is magic. I'd love to know where else in the books you see moments of joyful anticipation. Thank you for this podcast and everything you do. Oh, Beth, I am so embarrassed that we only talked about the bad parts of anticipation. I think that you can see that Matt and I live in an anxious state most of the time. <laughs> but I love you reframing this question for us to talk about the exciting things that, you know, that characters anticipate in the Harry Potter books. Um, I mean, I think that the obvious one to me is Hermione at the beginning of every school year, right? Like going to Flourish and Blots and getting all of her supplies in her books and, you know, and, you know, getting crookshanks and getting everything ready. And same with Harry, right? Like getting ready to go back to Hogwarts is like the thing he anticipates all summer. But Hannah, what about you? You saw my face lit up when Beth said Frankenfurter because I see you shiver with anticipation is the first thing I think of when I think of the word, which also means for me, I'm like, cool, anticipation, a particularly queer erotic 
because queer erotics are often characterized by a sort of delay because of, you know, the function of the closet and all of these things. So when I think of anticipation, I also think of what's like simmering under the surface that then gets pulled out in fan fiction, for example, and the pleasure of like a simmering subtext that maybe the text itself will never actually play out for us. But like, that's fine. We have our imaginations. We can pull Mm -hmm. out those subtexts and make them text ourselves, should we choose to do so. Draco and Harry definitely make out. Just just simmering subtext. I also think about, I am profoundly indifferent to Quidditch matches. Mm -hmm. But... I love the morning scenes before the matches mm-hmm. when they get up and they're nervous and they're having their breakfast and then they're going out. Like, I love that ritual of a game morning. And again, that sort of simmering anticipatory energy, which is sometimes when you have a big thing you're looking forward to, sometimes the anticipation's the best part. I think my big thing about anticipation is that anticipation is also the thing. Mm. Like getting ready to go to the wedding is part of the wedding, right? Like part of the fun of the wedding is Mm -hmm. putting on your suit, braiding your hair, braiding your hair before you put on your suit, right? Like it doesn't matter what it is. Like that is part of the wedding. And it's not once you arrive at the wedding that time is more valuable. It's all your time. Mm -hmm. And it's a ritualized time. And that's beautiful. And it is a separate time type of time, but it's all time and every moment of your life is precious in that way. And so, yeah, I think anticipation is part of the thing in a fun way. Yeah. And then the denouement as well, right? The pleasurable recollection of the thing are all just part of the thing. Well, Hannah McGregor, a pleasure and honor. Just thank you so much. And mostly like congratulations on this really wonderful book. And All of our listeners, Hannah is an academic, and this is an academically informed book, but this does not read like an academic's book. Hannah intentionally writes her book as if she is talking to you. It is very much in her podcaster voice. And so do not be intimidated by this book, regardless of how brilliant it is. It is immensely readable and brilliant at the same time. Thank you so much. That was the goal. Well, you accomplished the goal. Just a few reminders before we give our thanks. The big one being that summer camp next summer is going to have Hannah McGregor and her co-host Marcel Cosman. And so you all should definitely check out our Not Sorry summer camp at NotSorryWorks.com because now that you know Hannah even better, you're probably going to even more want to come. And also two other announcements are that we have two live shows coming up, one in Somerville, Massachusetts, and the other in Denver, Colorado. And you should go to harrypottersacredtext.com to learn more about those. And we hope to see you there. This was a Not Sorry production. We are a feminist production company. And we're mentioned in A Sentimental Education by Hannah McGregor. Our executive producer is Ariana Nettleman. We are edited by Malika Gumpankum and produced by AJ Yaramas. Our audio engineer is Erica Wong. And our music is by Ivan Paisau and Nick Bull. We are distributed by ACAST. We would like to thank Kath, Sam, and Beth for their voicemails this week. Laura Glass, Julia Argy, Gabby Iori, Nikki Zoltan, Casper Turk Kyle, Stephanie Paulsell, Hannah Rehack, and a very special thank you for Hannah McGregor. Enjoy sabbatical, Hannah. Thank you. Thank you.